And uh, we'll read the first 11 verses, but our focus tonight will be verses uh, 8 to 11. But just to get the flow again of of what is being said here. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the, of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Amen. <clears throat> well, Paul had given, in those early verses, we reread it, saw uh, he had given Timothy a charge that he commands certain ones not to teach uh, different doctrines. And what they had done is they had taken and misused the Old Testament. They had taken the Old Testament, some of the genealogies, and they had created these fanciful doctrines and teachings. And so it distorted the true meaning of the Old Testament. And so Paul is telling Timothy, you need to tell him to quit. Quit telling, um, quit teaching heterodox doctrine. We need to be orthodox, teaching straight from the scriptures. And the problem was their misuse of the Bible caused them to undermine the point of the gospel and the Bible, as as he says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So that's what Paul wanted to be um, happening in their lives. But because of this false teaching, that was being undermined. But now Paul does not want you to think that he doesn't favor or isn't for the Old Testament. Uh, or to think that somehow the Old Testament isn't for us. He's not in any way saying that. So even though he's critical of their use of the Old Testament, <clears throat> he's going to counteract that by giving a proper use of the Old Testament, specifically the law. And so there's three things that we see in these verses 8 to 11. The first is the law is good. Uh, and he gives us kind of an overview 
of how the law is good, how it can be used in a proper way. Then in the middle is he gives some of the content of God's law. He takes specific commands, particularly the second table of the law, and applies that to certain moral situations. So he's showing us how to use the law and applying it in a proper way. And then the conclusion is that the law and the gospel go together. <clears throat> the, law and the, gloss, the law and the gospel are not enemies. They both serve to bring people, uh, the people of God to um, an understanding of the gospel and the need of Christ and so ultimately come to him. Uh, so we begin with the law is good. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So Paul's not in any way trying to say the law is bad. And he says four things about the law in this section. Um, The first is this point that the law is good. It's beneficial to us. God wants us to know his standards of righteousness. God wants us to understand uh, the calling that he has for us and how we can be obedient And he's affirming uh, our understanding of that. So the law is not a bad thing, even though these people are misusing it. The law is good. And a couple parallel thoughts of his are in Romans 7. So if you would turn to Romans 7 for a moment. He doesn't want us to distance ourselves from the Old Testament. He wants us to use it properly. So in Romans 7, just two verses to look at there. Verse 7, he says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And then verse 12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. So the law is good. It's not a bad thing, but even a good thing can be used wrongly. And um, that's what he's addressing in this passage in 1 Timothy. So So the first thing is the law is good. The second thing is the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So we need to use it in the proper way. It's uh, admirable, Uh, but if one misuses the law, if one makes it a means for justification, if one burdens down the law with all kinds of man-made traditions as the Pharisees did, then they are misusing the law and it's not being used well. It's not being used for our good. Uh, if we do as these <clears throat> false teachers do, take the law as a jumping off point to get fairly fanciful in our thinking, that's not a good use of the law either. So the law is good. The Old Testament is good, but we have to use it properly. Then the third thing that he says here, it's in the first part of Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or for the righteous. Now, what Paul is not saying 
He's not saying that the law isn't for Christians or the law isn't for people who have come to know the Lord, as uh, many evangelical authors would say, uh, that the law isn't for Christians. The law is the Old Testament. That's for the Jew. It's not for us in our today. He's not saying that the law isn't of benefit to those who have been made righteous. He's not teaching a form of antinomianism, anti-law. But part of the point that Paul is making there is uh, the law is that if we always did what was right, we wouldn't need the law. Of course, we know we don't always do what's right. At least I hope you know that you don't always do things that are right. So we do need the law. But if, if we always did what was right, we wouldn't need the law. Uh, Gordon Clark puts it this way. He says, if Adam had not sinned, and if we always did by instinct what is right, there would have been no need for the Mosaic law. Unfortunately, there is none righteous, no, not one. Therefore, we need the law. <clears throat> and even justified believers, they're not justified by keeping the law, but even justified believers struggle with indwelling sin. And so we need the law to make us aware of our need of Christ and of our accountability to walk in godliness. Uh, William Hendrickson, he makes the point. uh, That was the very point which these false teachers in Ephesus were forgetting. The reason why they wasted their time on all kinds of fanciful tales regarding ancestors was was that they had never learned to know themselves as sinners before God. They were puffed up, arrogant, boastful, haughty, self-righteous. That was their big sin. As Paul points out repeatedly, they lacked humility, the consciousness of guilt. So when Paul says the law is not um, given for the righteous... He's not saying that the law isn't given for justified people. But he's actually trying to make the point, well, if we were really righteous, we wouldn't need the law. But the fact is, we're not. And so we need the law. We need its corrections. We need its instruction. So the law is good if we use it lawfully. But then he, the last little portion under this, Section is he then gives an overview for who is the law for? Uh, if it's not for the people who are perfect, which there are none, but if it's not for the people who are perfect, who is the law for? <clears throat> and he gives three groupings of people. He says, first of all, <clears throat> different categories of sinners. He says, first of all, for the lawless and the disobedient. The lawless persons are not those who are ignorant of the law. The lawless persons are those who um, live without regard for the law. And uh, therefore connected to that is, is disobedience. They live as, as doing whatever they please. And so they're living as though they don't have a law. And they're disobedient 
to God. They're insubordinate, rebellious. They um, act as though they don't have any accountability. And the law was written for them uh, to, to confront them with their sin. One of the purposes of the law is to drive us to understand our sinfulness. <clears throat> so the first grouping is the lawless and the disobedient. The second grouping is for the ungodly and the sinners. Sinners is the most general word in the New Testament for sinners. Uh, but the, uh, for the ungodly, uh, that is a person who was at the very core of their being, um, apart from God and living and their, and their very nature is contrary to the, the holiness of God. They're ungodly and they're sinners. And the encouragement of the gospel is that it's just for those kind of people for whom Christ died. I'll just read this for you, but in Romans 5, it tells us, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, the same word. When the law confronts us that we are ungodly, the gospel comes along with that and reminds us that it's for just such a person that Jesus died. So we have hope in repentance. And then the, the third grouping is for the unholy and the profane. Uh, the word unholy is used very rarely in the New Testament. It's used here and in another grouping of, of sinners in Second um, Timothy 3. But it's those people, obviously, that are the opposite of the holiness of God. They're unholy. They're not holy. They're unholy and profane. Now, that's kind of an interesting word <clears throat> connected to unholy. Uh, the preposition pro means in front of. The uh, second half of the word fame is connected to the courts of the temple. And when it's saying we're profane, it's saying that we're in front of the court of the temple uh, doing ungodly things. We're profaning God's holy place. We're acting wrongly in front of the temple or the sanctuary. <clears throat> and the pro profane person uh, tramples on that which is holy. So that puts the two words together very well. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12, 16. We have another expression of the profane. Hebrews twelve sixteen, <clears throat> And uh, let's pick it up at verse 15. See to it that no one falls, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, and that's the word profane, uh, here it's translated unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. <clears throat> Profane's a better translation at that point because 
Esau considered the blessings of the covenant as an unholy thing. He profaned the covenant promises. And so God's judgment fell upon him. So we have the law is good if we use it lawfully. And uh, we use it to confront our, us and our sinfulness to drive us to Christ. So Paul is giving us that <clears throat> correction to the false teachers. But then he illustrates his point in taking us to various commandments of the law to um, apply them to, um, to us. It's the last part of verse 9 and on in through verse 10. And so I'm just going to take these uh, one at a time, and you can see very clearly what some of the commandments that they're talking about. Uh, we uh, he, he were confronted with specific sins. So in the uh, in verse nine, for um, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, and in reality, what it's saying here in this particular use of those words. is for those who kill their fathers and mothers. Obviously, this is a violation of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother uh, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. In the Old Testament law as well, in Exodus 21, it says, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So if simply striking your parents would lead to the death penalty, how much greater would be the uh, those who slay? I know the ESV has strike here, but the word is a little more um, gripping than that. Uh, who strike their fathers and mothers. It's very important for us to honor our parents. And um, it brings woe on us if we do not. Now, I don't know if any of you all, some of you know of Francis Schaefer and Edith Schaefer and uh, their son, Frankie, at one point in time, uh, spoke well of his parents. But in recent years, he has just written the most vile things about his parents. And it's just very gripping. Whether you liked Francis Schaefer and Edith Schaefer, I mean... They, they did wonderful work. Whether you always agreed on them and their apologetics or whatever it was, they, um, they were people to be respected by all of us. And that's a gripping thing when a, when a person does that. And so Paul applies this to us. We need to be careful to obey the fifth commandment. Uh, He adds there in the last of verse 9, for men slayers, for those who are murderers, uh, breaking the sixth commandment, for those who take not only the lives of their parents, but take the lives of any man who uh, commit commit murder. That's, That's a violation. The law is for that person to confront them with their guilt. Uh, In verse 10, it begins with, for the sexually immoral, this is the most general word for uh, immorality, and it 
subsumes under all different kinds of forms. He doesn't go into other kinds of forms of immorality here, but it's he's speaking of uh, any um, relationships outside of marriage uh, that they are wrong. It's a violation of the sixth commandment. And it should not, we should not do that. We're condemned if we do that. The next one is a specific <clears throat> immorality for men who practice homosexuality. And as much as in our modern world, churches try to say that this particular kind of behavior is okay, the application of the law Paul is making here is very clearly it is not. It's a violation of the sixth commandment. It's sin. And whether you know someone caught in that sin and you have... um, a relationship with them, that's fine. <clears throat> but we cannot ever um, dismiss it as not sin. Uh, the word itself is very gripping. It's the bed and males on that bed. It's a very graphic description, really, in one sense, of this particular sin. In the church today, any day, should not minimize that or deny that it's a sin. The next specific sin that he makes reference to is enslavers. Uh, It's man-stealing. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Stealing a person, putting them into slavery. It's against God's law and against God's word. And it, I, I marvel at Christians in the past in our own country uh, in any other places who might justify slavery. And uh, not there's some really wonderful people, wonderful theologians who are great in many ways, but uh, somehow tried to defend slavery. Uh, this is very specifically against it. It's a violation of the law of God to kidnap someone and to steal them and take them away. And um, how believers in past generations didn't read that verse and see that is still a puzzle. But I'm sure they would look at us and say, well, there's a lot of things we're missing, too. So I'm not minimizing it in any way. But um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a violation of God's law. And it shouldn't happen. And yet it's happening throughout the world. We know it. Um, not just on a racial basis, but uh, there's so much of this happening in our world and it's a violation of God's holy law. He continues on. Uh, liars and perjurers, both violations of the ninth commandment, where, where, where we're told not to bear false witness against our neighbor. <clears throat> so if we uh, speak falsehood and if we perjuring is specifically kind of in a courtroom setting, if we're 
called on to give an oath that what we say is true and we lie, uh, but the, uh, we're, we're committing perjury, but it's a violation of God's ninth commandment. So you see how Paul's taking the law and he's use, using it lawfully and he's saying it's good for us. And then he sort of summarizes it and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Whatever misuses of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but whatever you misuses of the law are um, condemned by Paul's application. We use the law lawfully. We apply it to sin. We use it to uncover wickedness in our own lives and in our world. And we need to hold fast to that. That's the right and proper use of the law of God. And the last thing Paul brings, brings out is that in the law and the gospel are not enemies. Uh, different aspects, different uh, thoughts in them, but they're not enemies. He goes on in verse 11 to say, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Using the law lawfully is in accordance with the gospel. And unfortunately, so many people write and teach that uh, the law is bad for Christians. That we don't need the law as New Testament Christians. And that's just wrong. The the law used lawfully is not out of balance with the gospel. But they're together. Now we don't, using the law wrongly would be to say we're justified by keeping the law. Obviously that's not correct. But the law used to bring men accountable and confront them with their sin is in accordance with the gospel because then the gospel gives us the remedy and the hope of the good news that that sin can be forgiven because of Christ and his work. So they're not fighting each other. We in our, the way we deal with these things sometimes make them enemies, but they're not enemies. The law confronts us with sin and the gospel comes along with it and agrees with that but says here's the answer it's not in you it's in Christ and Christ paid the penalty for that and he provides forgiveness for you so that you can have grace and you can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and the way he describes it is so wonderful the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's a, the gospel is a glorious thing. The hope and the forgiveness of sin, the, the great uh, redemption that Christ accomplished for us is a great and wonderful, joyful thing. It's a glorious thing. And Paul emphasizes that it's the <clears throat> good news of the glory of the blessed God. And then he mentions, to which I have been entrusted Paul, as an apostle, was entrusted with this gospel. And he presents that here throughout his writings and uh, presenting the 
the great truth. In fact, the next section we're going to get into is a great, wonderful presentation of that gospel of grace to sinners. The faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I was chief, first and foremost. So Paul here hopefully is helpfully for you, for me, reminding us the law is good if we use it lawfully. The law is to confront sin, as he illustrated with those lists of sins. But it works hand in hand with the gospel as it points us to the redemption that comes in Christ and Christ alone. So we, may we appreciate our Old Testament and use it rightly and let it push us to Christ and faith in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the uh, blessed truth of your word, both in the Old Testament and the New. We know that it can be misused and has been misused by many. We pray, O oh Father, that we will handle your word well. We will rightly divide your word of truth and understand its application and its usefulness for us and that it all will draw us to love our Savior more and more. And may you, O Lord, be glorified as you do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.